You may be seated. Well, whenever I'm trying to figure out uh, a book uh, to preach on Sunday morning, whenever we start a new series, I pretty much do the same thing every time. I begin with this simple prayer. God, what are the greatest needs of our faith family, of our church body here at Mercy Hill? I don't begin by uh, throwing a dart against the wall with a bunch of Bible books on it, see where it lands. Uh, I'm not really all that interested in what would be most interesting or uh, what people really want to hear or even what is most popular. That is what other churches or other pastors are preaching on. It's simply what book do I think would would best address and meet the needs uh, of the people within our church. Now, needs are going to vary from person to person, from family to family. I, I get that. But as a body living in the same place and going to work in the same community and things like that, we, I believe that many of us are going to be struggling with some of the same spiritual difficulties as the body of Christ. And so when I ask that question, uh, you know, what is the greatest need? Several things begin to just kind of come to mind. I thought, well, listen, with us just now getting back together and, and from, from this corona thing and still not knowing what the future holds with all of this, uh, what do we need? And first, I begin to think, well, maybe we just need to be reminded that even though everything seems to be changing around us, one thing has not changed, and that is the mission of the church, that we are still called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and make disciples of all nations. It may look differently right now, but it's still the same. And if I were to do that, I would probably jump right into a new study in the book of Acts. But if you've been around a little while, you know that we did that less than two years ago. So then I thought, well, maybe what we need is just simplicity. Maybe we just need to get back to the very core basics of our belief system and what we believe and, and really talk about what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't. And then I thought, well, if we did that, we would preach out of the book of Galatians. But we just did that not long ago at all. Now, there might be some others going, hey, bro, it's easy to know what we're supposed to be doing. We need somebody to get up and make sense of this whole coronavirus thing. Uh, why in the world does this thing come about us? And again, I would say that I at least attempted to be able to answer that with our study through the book of Hosea, reminding us that God allows difficulties to be able to come our way to get our attention, to turn us back to him, to repent from our sin and be reconciled with him once again. And let's face it, none of us, neither you nor me, want to go through Hosea again. Amen? None of us want to go through back that again. So what is left? That's the question. And I think it's this. I think if we need anything in this time of craziness and uncertainty, it's that you and I need to believe, and we need to believe more. And what I mean by that is the majority of the people that I'm talking to, I, I believe, are, are, are believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, the people that will be listening to this uh, over the internet this morning, uh, they have placed their faith in Christ. They believe that God is sovereign, that he's control of all things, that he is a good God, that he's a gracious God, that he's a forgiving God, and he is a caring God. We believe all those things. But when you're in the midst of the world seemingly falling apart as we watch it right now, uh, what we have to do is we have to double down on what we already know to be true. And for that reason, I've chosen the gospel according to Luke uh, to be our next sermon series. Now, it's interesting, when I look back at the history of my time here, 15 or so years, I, I, I've noticed that I've never actually preached through the book of Luke before. Uh, I've preached through Matthew in the first church that I pastored, through Mark twice here at Mercy Hill. I even preached a, a series through the book of John in a series entitled uh, The Moorings of the Faith, uh, but never the book of Luke. And I think the reason for that is because of timing. Uh, I always just feel, because Luke opens up with so 
much detail about the birth of Christ that you should always preach it around Christmas time. And so I always thought, well, what we'll do is maybe in June, yeah, or excuse me, June, <laughs> nice, uh, during uh, November and December, that's when I'll start it. Then it will all make sense and it will make for a great holiday. Uh, but it never seemed to work out that way. Whenever we got there, there was either another focus or there was, we were in the middle of another study and it just didn't seem natural to be able to make that shift. But then I begin to think, the more I begin to think of Luke and its message, I begin to think, well, you know what? Maybe the book would be better understood not around the time of Christmas. Because let's be honest, oftentimes when we're alluding to Luke or a pastor's preaching in the book of Luke right around Christmas time, uh, we're always viewing what we're studying in light of a holiday. In, light, uh, in other words, in light of Christmas cookies and Christmas lights and Christmas trees and getting together and making sure that Jesus is the reason for the season, right? That's what we're always doing. And that's good and that's acceptable and that's great. But I think in light of that, we're, we're really interpreting Scripture in light of a holiday, rather interpreting Scripture in light of God's redemptive plan for mankind. And really looking about what was he doing during this period? What was he trying to teach us? What are we to know about all that he accomplished and all that he ultimately taught? And so what I want to do is I want us to go ahead and revisit and begin to learn uh, and, and study the book of Luke uh, because what I want is, I, I want us to be more confident in what we have already been taught, more confident in what we already believe to be true. Because confidence and certainty doesn't come from within us, from trying to stir something within us. It, it, it doesn't come from uh, anything we do externally. You know where it comes from? Learning more about the works and the teachings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where confidence comes from, to know that what it is that we believe is, in fact, true beyond any doubt. And so that's what we're going to do over the weeks and the months and the next 16 years to come is try to get through the book of Luke. And so, so what we're going to do, so today we're just going to use this time as an introduction to the book, looking at verses 1 through 4. I know some of you hate introductions to books. I love them. Helps us to understand and interpret what it is that we're about to see. So three simple things I want to give you this morning. First of all, we want to talk about the author of the book. We want to talk about the audience of the book. And then we want to talk about, just for a moment, the purpose of why the book was actually written. So let's begin with the author, if we might. Obviously, the author is pretty self-evident. The gospel according to Luke, that's exactly, Luke wrote the book, that's the easy part. The difficult part is the Bible doesn't really tell us a whole, a whole great deal about him, uh, what we, which is interesting because the truth of the matter is, is Luke is responsible, single-handedly responsible, for writing more verses in the New Testament than any other author, including the Apostle Paul. In fact, he has written uh, the gospel according to Luke as well as the book of Acts. And if you were to look at it within the New Testament, it takes up approximately 20% of the full volume of all of the books of the New Testament. That's a lot of text of scripture. It's also interesting to, to note that he is the only non-Jewish Gentile author of any of the books of the New Testament. And he is the only gospel writer who never met Jesus Christ face to face. So he never met Christ, he never saw the miracles that he performed, he, he, he never heard Jesus Christ's teaching, and that makes him a unique author for the New Testament. Now, Paul actually references um, Luke on a couple different occasions. Uh, for example, in, Luke chapter, or in 2 Timothy 4.11 and Philemon uh, 24, uh, he refers to him as his fellow worker. 
as his fellow worker. In other words, this was his companion that uh, we believe he first got to know Paul, or met, first met Paul on Paul's first missionary journey. That he, he met him, came to faith in Jesus Christ. Then when Paul was traveling through Traos on his second missionary journey, that that's when Luke actually decided to join him in the gospel ministry. Continued through the rest of the second missionary journey and then all the way through the third missionary journey. So he was there as a companion to be able to take some of the load off Paul in the preaching ministry of the gospel. That must have been a great encouragement to the Apostle Paul. But he was more than that. He was more than just a a fellow worker. Uh, Paul actually refers to him in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14 as the beloved physician. The beloved physician. And so what that tells us is not only what Luke did as an occupation, that he was a doctor, but it also tells us uh, Paul's affections, special affections that he had for Luke. See, um, Paul, as you know, this man took a literal beating for the sake of Christ. In fact, I, I can't think of any other uh, um, gospel writer or, or any other um, disciple or apostle that suffered more at the hands of, of God's enemies than the apostle Paul. He was beaten repeatedly, whipped repeatedly, in chains repeatedly. Uh, all of these things ultimately happened to him. And so if anybody was in need of a physician, a personal physician, it would have been the apostle Paul. So think about the comfort that that would have brought uh, 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 Paul to know that you had a man not only that would take some of the weight of the gospel ministry off his shoulders and allow him to be able to breathe, but also daily be able to come to him and to be able to look after his needs. And we know that he cared for him even in the very final weeks of Paul's life, uh, the final few weeks when he was in Rome in prison waiting execution. So he not only spent his time ministering with Paul, but ministering to Paul. Now, according to church history, we don't find this anywhere in the Word of God, but according to, uh, Bible, or to, to uh, historical tradition, uh, Luke never married and he never had any children. It was said that he was married to the ministry, that he had dedicated his whole life for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he ended up dying at age 84, which is exceptional not only in our time, but especially in the first century. So that's who wrote the book. Now, we're going to learn more about him by the way that he writes as we begin to work through the book, but that's a little bit of an introduction to him. Now, who was it that he was writing to? Who was the actual audience? Well, if you look over to verse 3, it actually tells us. He actually addresses this letter to someone that he refers to as most excellent Theophilus. What a great title. In fact, if you would refer to me in that way, I would appreciate it. Most excellent Pastor Mike Wydkowski. Um, I know, no chance, but most excellent Theophilus. The name Theophilus is actually made up of two Greek words. One is theos, which means God, and the other is phileo, which means love. So his name literally means the one who is a lover of God. And so because of that name, there's actually many who have actually made a case that have suggested that this was no actual person, but rather this was his way of referencing all believers of Jesus Christ. So anybody who loves Jesus Christ is who he's ultimately referring and dedicating this book to. And there is some merit to that, but I don't think that's the truth. I think instead what's going on is that Theophilus was an actual historical figure. Here's why. Because of that title. 
Uh, Because of the title, uh, Most Excellent, in that part, that was actually a common terminology or title that would have been used in the first century of somebody who was from the upper crust, some great nobleman, if you will, somebody who had a great deal of power, affluence, and and money. In in fact, some believe that Theophilus might even have been a, a, a very important Roman official, even though we can't be sure of that. The other reason why I think it's a person is because, is because Luke is addressing him in the beginning of his work. And that was commonplace for the day. See, writers on different literary uh, works during the day, they would have to get uh, benefactors, if you will, that would give them and support them as they would ultimately do their work and so that they could make a living. And so it was commonplace for an individual to address and to, and to basically dedicate the work that they, that they had done in light and in name of the person who ultimately sponsored them. So I believe that this man, Theophilus, is, is a true, actual, historical figure, a nobleman of upper class. He's, he's wealthy. He has great influence. And, and even though we don't know whether he's a believer or not, I tend to believe that he is. Now, some have said if he was a believer, Luke would have really acknowledged him as Brother Theophilus instead of most excellent Theophilus. But I have a hard time believing that, that, that Theophilus, is, if he was an unbeliever, was going to be supporting this man for all of this time to write a book about Jesus Christ if he didn't have some level of faith that he was holding to. And so that basically is the audience. But I just want to note this. That's the specific audience, but there's a much broader audience. Who is that? It's you and I. It is indeed all lovers of Jesus Christ, all lovers of God who are reading this. How do we know? Because God is the one who allowed this work not only to be written, but also to be secured in the, in the word of God for you and I to be able to read. So as he's writing to them, those truths go to him, but they go to us and are applicable for us as well. So the author is Luke. The audience is who? Theophilus and us as well. But here's the bottom line is, why did he write this? What was the purpose behind it? Let me show that to you in the Word of God. Look at verse 1. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers to the Word have delivered them to us. So Luke begins by just stating, hey, I'm not the first guy to be able to write down and make an actual official record of the life and the works and the teachings of Jesus Christ. There were others before me. In fact, he says that there were many who had undertaken to compile a narrative. So he's not being demeaning. Don't think he's saying, well, you know what? There were some guys that tried to write about Jesus before I came and they just blew it. And now I'm going to show them how to really do it. That's not what's going on here. He's not demeaning. He's actually affirming in the way that he addresses them. He addresses them as eyewitnesses and ministers of the gospel. He says, the guys who wrote before, and I think he might be referring to people like Matthew and to Mark, either uh, the apostles, the way that he describes them, either people that were uh, actual apostles or close associates to them. And and what he's talking about is that they were eyewitnesses. That is, everything they wrote down, they were actually there to see themselves. They saw it, and they not only preached about it, but some of them actually wrote it down. So they were, they, were, they were witnesses of it, they were proclaiming of it, and then they also wrote them down as they were being led by the Holy Spirit. He says, but even though they did that, he goes, I want to do the same. This is what it means in verse 3 when he says, it seemed good to me also. That is to write another account just like the others had, but there's a difference with Luke. 
Here's the difference. He wasn't an eyewitness. We just mentioned that. He wasn't there to be able to see what Christ had done. He wasn't there to see the risen Savior. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't there when Jesus was teaching all of his many teachings. And so he goes about compiling his book in a much different way. He says here that he followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account. What he did was he was an investigator. He is not only a physician, but he's also a historian. What he began to do is he began to take this time, being sponsored most likely from Theophilus, to begin to travel around all of Palestine and meet the people who were there, who saw things. And this begins to become evident as we begin to look at the book. Think about how the beginning of Luke begins. It begins with all of this detail around, around the birth of Jesus Christ. It begins to talk about John the Baptist and his parents and what happened there and how they found out about a child. And it talks about Jesus and Mary in this song that she sings. It's all details that we didn't find in any of the other Gospels. Why? Because he went to John the Baptist's parents. He went to Mary. And he said, tell me everything. Tell me what happened. How did all of this go on? So we begin to see all of these details that we don't even see in some of the other gospels. So he's getting it straight from them. When he says that he, is, he, he wanted to provide an orderly uh, uh, account, uh, that's not to be understood as he was trying to write everything in the book of Luke in chronological order. Now, I will say the majority of it is in chronological order. This happened, then that happened, and this happened. But that's not what he was trying to do. Instead, when he says, I was trying to give an orderly account, he was trying to say that he was trying to lay out the material of Christ's life and his teaching, lay it out in a way that would be most clearly understood for you and I. It's kind of like when I'm putting a sermon together. Uh, Sometimes my points, you know how there are points in a sermon? Yeah, some of you know, and some of you are sleeping. Some of you are like, why did I leave home in my cereal? I get it. Um, but, but, some of, but, but what happens is, is with this is when I preach a sermon, sometimes, and you'll note that my first point doesn't come from the beginning of the passage. Sometimes it comes from the end. Sometimes it comes from the middle or, or maybe halfway down. And then I begin to go back to the front. The reason I'm doing that is not to try to be unbiblical. I'm trying to lay out the material in the most logical way for me to present it to you for you to be able to understand. And that's what the biblical author of Luke does. He says most of it is in, in chronological order, but sometimes he's just organizing things in a way so that you and I would get the most out of it. And so the question here is why did Luke do this? This sounds like a lot of work, doesn't it? to begin to take all the time to interview all those people, to be able to put a paper together. I grade you know, our kids' papers at home and try to read over them, and it's two pages, and I get to the end, two pages, and the first thing I do when they hand me the thing is to look how many pages it is. Are you with me? Because you're like, how long is this going to take for me to do this? And so I look at it, but Luke sits down, and he writes all of this, travels all these places, and then he, we- he weaves all of these things in together into this beautiful, accurate story that he wanted to tell about the life and the works and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Why does he do it? Well, the obvious answer, theological answer, is he's being moved by the Holy Spirit to write these very words. But what answer does he give? We understand that. But here's the answer that he gives, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Do you see why I want to be in this book? I said, if our desire and the desire or our need right now in the midst of this time is for you and I to believe more, then why not, why not read, read a book that was written for the purpose of those who have been taught the things of God to learn more and be more certain about the truths that they have already learned? That's why we've chosen this book. 
Now again, for Theophilus, he was even either saying to Theophilus, hey, you're a believer and I want you to learn more, or hey, look, you know some of the truths and you've been taught, but you haven't come to faith in Christ yet. Both of those things might happen amongst our body as we work through this book. Now, the question is, was he, was he successful in what he did? Was he actually able to write and put together a very accurate and detailed account that you and I can absolutely trust and take to the bank and believe that it happened the way that it did? That is a huge question for us. Well, the answer to that, I don't really want to be able to go back really to the 19th century, think 1800s. About the mid-1800s, there was a movement called uh, Higher Criticism. And this was actually kind of like a pushback or a rebellion really against the Victorian age, Victorian era, which was basically a time where people just believed the Bible. Can you believe that kind of age? Just believed the Bible to be true and, and taught it to be true. Well, in Germany, uh, there were some professors uh, that ended up kind of going through the ranks and begin to introduce this higher criticism where their only goal was to basically debunk and to devalue the word of God. So they went through and tried to do everything that they possibly can to be able to find errors in it, to destroy it, and to destroy people's faith in it. And so there was one particular gentleman by the name of Sir William Ramsey. Sir William Ramsey was an atheist. He was born to a father who was an atheist. He was a brilliant man, no doubt. He was a great, really respected um, historian and as well as an archaeologist. And his work was really kind of world-renowned. And, and he decided, primarily for the purpose of discrediting Christianity, decided that he would take a number of years and go to Palestine, that is the, Israel, is the area of Israel, and he would begin to study there and to be able to try to do some archaeology that would unprove, if you will, disprove the claims of the Bible. So he decided to use two books to be able to do that. Guess what books they were? The book of Luke and the book of Acts, both written by our author. And the reason that he did it is because Luke gives more critical details than any other gospel writer. He gives specifics about what happened, where it happened, who was ruling at the time, what was happening geographically in that particular area. So here's what Sir William Ramsey thought. He said, well, I'm just going to follow the Bible. And I'm going to go to the places where he talks about here. And I'm going to, do, and I'm going to dig up some dirt. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to find out and disprove uh, Luke and what he's writing and show that what he said and what he's stating is wrong to show that this whole Bible is ultimately a fairy tale. And so here, after 25 years of study, he came and he wrote these words. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, this author should be placed among, uh, along with the very greatest of historians. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect to its trustworthiness. What actually happened as he began to study is he went from being an atheist to an agnostic, and from an agnostic to a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And then from a believer in Jesus Christ, he continued to defend the faith and became an apologist for the faith because of his certainty that what is written is absolutely 100% true. So it appears as though Luke did indeed accomplish what he had set out to accomplish. Now, here's what I doubt. I doubt that we have a tremendous number of Sir William Ramseys here today we're sitting there and say that my whole purpose in life is to disprove the word of God. But I do believe, and we don't like to talk about this often, but we should, 
that there are folks who sit here that are a part of the body or maybe even visiting in part of Mercy Hill where they struggle with their faith. Maybe you're listening to certain things online or reading certain books. All of us know what that's like. Do, do we not? Where we read something and all of a sudden we feel a little bit something, go, well, wait a minute, is this true or is this not true? That's not a sign of lostness, by the way. That's a sign of being a human being saved by grace through faith alone. And so, so what happens is sometimes we do feel that way. Here's my prayer. My prayer is for those who are having doubts. I, look, they've, they've been taught it all before and they've believed it before, but now that faith is dwindling a little bit, I pray that as we work through the Holy Spirit, we'll drive this truth in you and me and we'll believe more than we've ever believed before. But here's what I understand. Again, I don't think there's very many probably in that category. Some, but not many. I, because I think the most of you do believe this book. I believe that most of you would, would, would say uh, in a declarative way that you would say, I believe every bit of this book to be true. I have no problem with proclaiming that the iner- inerrancy of Scripture. And I agree with you, and I believe, but I don't think that's the issue for many people today. It's not an issue of inerrancy. Is, that, is the Bible uh, uh, devoid of those errors? Uh, the question today uh, has to do uh, far more with sufficiency. That's where I think believers today are beginning to doubt. In other words, they don't doubt that whether it's true, they just don't think it's the whole truth. They think that there's a lot more truth out there. Yes, the Bible is good in trying to help us to, to, to live unto God and learn how to have a right relationship with him and it could tell us how to go to heaven and how to have our sins forgiven, but it's really not real helpful for the real struggles and the difficulties in which this world is ultimately facing. For that, we must rely on something else. And I think that that's more common than not. And I was reminded of that this last week when... Um, the, the uncertainty is reminded in, in the fact that of people's responses of some professing Christians in light of all the racial tensions that we've been seeing break out, you know, within not only our own country, but really around the world. I have a friend, you know that I'm not on social media uh, because most of, you, most of you would unfriend me and it would hurt my feelings. I think that's a thing. But anyway, I'm not on there. I'm not on there because I don't think I would sleep, and my wife prefers that I sleep at night. And so I'm not on social media, but I do talk with other folks and say, hey, you know, what are people saying and, and doing? And one gentleman said to me, he says, you know, he goes, man, he goes, I was a little bit hurt. He goes, uh, in the midst of all this, and, and how many of our hearts are not broken, right, for the country and for everything that is going on, for hurt and in every avenue and all that's going on and in in, in and my buddy just basically on social media said, this just reminds me that we are in need of the gospel more than ever. In need of the gospel more than ever. And that was my response. My response was the same thing. Amen. But what my buddy was telling me was he says all the negative feedback that he got, he goes, he got quite a bit of it. And I said, well, you expect that from a lost world. And he goes, but it's not from the lost world that I'm getting it. Where I'm getting the negative feedback are from those who are professing believers in Jesus Christ. They say, hey, listen, the gospel is not the answer for everything. There has to be more that goes beyond that. You're simplifying this. In fact, you're demeaning the real, the real severity of the problem by trying to simplify it and saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ is ultimately the answer. Now, let me make sure that we understand something. We're not suggesting that laws shouldn't be passed and things shouldn't be taught and all these different times. We're not saying that physically something shouldn't be done. But what we are saying is that the core of every issue and ill problem within society really 
is solved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that's what we're trying to say. In other words, it, my first thoughts when I heard people respond this way, my first thought was, whoever is responding this way has never been gripped by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was my thought. Then I try to be a little bit more gracious and say, well, maybe they're just misunderstanding the depth of the power of the gospel altogether. And so I begin to think through this and see, this, the last time I checked, hatred, now listen carefully, hatred, racism, injustice, violence, rebellion, theft, destruction of other people's property, the last I checked, every one of those falls under the category of sin. Sin. And, and oftentimes we talk about those categories, especially racism, as though it's something different, that, that it's not sin. But the last I checked, the, and please understand something, this is nothing new. This sin has been around since the beginning of time, from Adam and Eve. It, it was only one generation removed that we had a brother killing another brother. This sin has been deep within the heart of mankind from the very beginning since the fall. And, 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 and yet the world is always trying to make sense of it, always trying to explain it, apart from the word of God, yes. They're always trying to come up with some type of solution for it. Uh, so, so what we need to do is we need to pass more laws, we need to, pass more, we need to legislate more carefully, we need to make uh, the punishments worse for those who violate those particular laws. And you know what? Just so that you know, that's exactly what the government should be doing. That, that, is the, that, that is the God-given mandate for God for the purpose of creating a government. It's to be able to protect those who are innocent within society, to punish evil, and to be able to help those who are uh, trying to do what is right. That, that is a part of the government. Here's the problem is, even though the government, as devised by God, can restrain evil to a certain level by its power, it cannot eliminate it. It can't eliminate it. I don't care how many classes you have or how many laws that are ultimately passed. Again, not demeaning the need for those things. Do you hear me clearly? Not demeaning that. But rather to be able to sit back and say, there's got to be something else that happens. What we understand is, the last that I checked, the only solution to the sin problem is, is for the sinful human being to be gripped by the message of Jesus Christ. Not only for their sins to be forgiven, but, but, but uh, forgiven, but now the hate uh, that they had in their hearts of sin will be forgiven and changed. When regenerated, hearts, that they, hearts turn from their sinful ways. Love replaces hate. Suspicion is replaced with respect. Peace replaces violence. And rebellion is replaced with obedience. How we need to understand very clearly, church, that Christ did not come primarily to make this world a better place, an easier place, a type of utopia, a perfect way for you and I just to be able to live. You, you understand that? That's not his primary purpose. You need to understand that because that is liberal teaching. What we need to understand is his primary purpose of coming is to forgive sinners and to reconcile them with God again. Now, with that said, when God changes us, things around us change. When God changes us, my relationship with my wife changes. My relationship with my friends change. The people in community changes. 
God takes a heart who hates people who are not like them and he melts them down and for the first time they begin them viewed not in color but they view them as a person who is created in the image of God the hatred that was there is now beginning to melt away because of the power of the gospel. When a person is mistreated and is, hold, and is holding against other people, hatred and, 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 and feels as though they're a victim, in which in many ways they are, but they can't get past that, God comes into them and gives them a softened heart for those who are abused, and they begin to forgive that other person. And as Ephesians says, here's what happens. Because of the power of gospel, Jesus Christ is our peace, and he breaks down the dividing wall which has separated us through the person of Jesus Christ. Please understand that Jesus Christ, this story that we're going to be sharing, the gospel of Jesus Christ is very much not only the answer to your sin and to your eternity, but is the answer to all sin in the world in which we live. It all begins there. So my prayer is that we will believe every bit of it that we will read it again for the first time and go, this stuff is historically accurate. I can trust this. But even more, sit there and say, I not only trust its inerrancy, but I trust its sufficiency for every area of life and godliness. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you, dear Jesus, for today and the power of your word. God, I thank you for working in here this morning. Thank you so much for these faces and these bodies that I get to, I get to look at their faces and, and they're here and we get to worship together. Thank you for that. But God, as we begin this new study in the book of Luke, I pray, Lord, that you would bring us back to the reality that this is truth, that this is truth. Help us to believe and to believe more. God, help us to believe that you solved it all on the cross through your death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to draw all men unto yourself as children of God to, to repent and place their faith in you. May there even be more who begin by doing it even today. In your precious name we pray, amen. Let's all stand together for a time of response. I'm gonna be down here like always. We just haven't done it in a while. But if you wanna come and you need prayer, just come at this time, all right?